as we talk about missionaries and their children, it could be anybody's children. I was, uh, I'd like to just, I was having a very difficult time coming to grips with uh, spiritual warfare. I uh, taught at two Bible colleges and taught against it, totally against it. Some of you heard Dan sharing this, against this whole thing of spiritual warfare, that it was fringy, it was uh, in the area of, of extremism, and it was in the area of people that are uh, not biblically oriented. And I really struggled with it. And then I came face to face with a Christian worker where voices were speaking out of her. I didn't know what to do. All I know is it frightened me. And I didn't know what to do with it. And uh, so what we did is we sent this person to, um, and I happened to be an experienced missionary, uh, one of the top missionaries of the mission I was with. And so we sent this missionary to see Fred Dickinson, who I thought was a charismatic working at Moody under they didn't know. Because, <laughs> see, I taught at Calvary Bible College, and the kids from Moody would come down to get their BA, and they talk about this guy casting demons at at Moody. I'm going, boy, Moody needs to know about this guy. So anyway, I mean, that's where I'm coming from. So we've got this missionary now with voices coming out of her, frightening me, the hair in the back of my neck standing up. I don't know what to do because nothing is working. The demons are laughing at me. It was the most horrible experience ever. I'm crying half the day. I, I just would cry. I didn't know what else to do but cry because nothing worked. The enemy knew I was saying words. I didn't believe the enemy was real. I mean, I believe he's in the Bible. And it was okay for Africans to have them, right? Or headhunters. They're inferior people anyway. Right? Chinese or whatever, but not Americans. Right? You know what I'm saying? That was my, I'm telling you, that's my worldview. It's, it's sick, but that was my worldview. You know, Americans don't have those problems. Just those kinds of people do. Well, anyway, I decided at that time that I would reread the Bible and mark every verse that dealt with spiritual warfare. So I went through and I read the Old Testament, New Testament, I read the New Testament about six or seven times, marked every verse. And I did Greek word studies on every single verse on spiritual warfare. I was not going to become fringy and strange. I was going to stick with whatever God said. I was going to stick with it. And, uh, you know, I was taught that the Gospels don't relate, period, and that we shouldn't do anything. So you, you work out the Gospels because a third of Jesus' ministry was dealing with spirits, but that, and that was in those days. But then I, the school I went to taught me the epistles were okay. And so I read the epistles, and I couldn't believe all the warfare in the epistles. I mean, it just blew me away. And so it's been a pilgrimage for me. And at the same time, the first 200 people that I dealt with with demonic problems were missionaries and Christian workers. I would not see someone that was not in full-time Christian work. What has really been tragic now in our office, we get... I mean, we, we, we see lots and lots of people uh, coming to, to Sioux City when I came here, just a little of my testimony, because what I'm going to share is going to be, for some of you, really off the wall of missionary stuff. Um, but when I came to Sioux City, I really felt I was coming to the end of the world, and this was the end of my ministry. Here I'm in a mission in 120 countries of the world, and I'm coming to Sioux City where? Nowhere. 
you know, and God's not going to know where I am. I'm going to be stuck here. <laughs> but the most amazing thing happened. I've been in Sioux City, and I've lost track. But in the last four and a half years, I know I've spoken to over 300,000 people face-to-face. And it was all the Lord. I never, I never, we don't advertise, we never say whatever. We just turn down opportunities. I've been all over the world. It's just been amazing what God has done. And what is sad, so many of the people coming now for counseling in our office that are wiped out are missionaries, missionaries' kids that have grown up, that are in rebellion, that have wiped their lives off in all kinds of sexual bondages, all kinds of terrible, terrible things. It's amazing how many full-time workers' kids that are now married and their marriages are being destroyed, their lives are being destroyed, missionary kids that were abused in mission schools, in, in mission boarding schools, trying to go through all the sexual abuse that went on there. We get calls from missions all over calling me and asking because they know I've been involved with the mission and they think, well, maybe I'll have a mind for missions. What do we do with this situation that's going on? It's We're, we're living in, in, in difficult days. I don't know. We get uh, about 5,000 callbacks a year at our little old office. That means when we have to call the people back, we get at least 5,000 of those. Horrible situations. You just can't believe. Uh, just sitting, if you sat in my office a week, well, I make my callbacks from 5 in the morning to 8 o'clock, you'd cry into the terrible things that are going on in Christian families and in people in leadership's families. It's just the enemy is having a heyday today. Why? I don't know. You know, is there an increase of enemy activity in America? Missionaries coming home say it is. Whether it's because of the new age, I don't know what it is. Because we're going into occult things. Or whether people are talking more openly about what is going on, I don't know. But just terrible things are going on. And so families are under attack. So we're going to talk about missionaries because this is the section. But you can relate that we're talking about families that are under attack. And I don't know a family, hardly, that's not hurting. You know, a family that's not in pain somewhere. You know, a teenager that's starting to drift off and this kind of stuff that's going on. And so we're trusting that our time together and and answering questions and our panel sharing. And I want to share some of the stories here that that will set kind of set the picture for families that are hurting. As I said, we deal with so many children, uh, little children, and so many teenagers that are, are brought to our office to be straightened out. And some of them don't get straightened out. In fact, I had a teenager come in. Um... This boy was in rebellion, and uh, he didn't want to be helped. And I told him, I said, you know, I really care about you, and I'll do anything I can to help you. But you don't want help right now. He was uh, 15 and a, 16 and a half. But I said, this door swings both ways. Now, your folks flew here from another state. As I said, I, people I see fly in from other countries or from other parts of the United States. So your folks flew here. They spent a lot of money. But I said, you don't want help, uh, but if you do, and if you don't have the money, just call, collect, and I'll help you. I'm here for you. And this boy walked out of my office. I never heard from him for a year and a half. Just before he called, I had another Christian family bring a a a 16-and-a-half-year-old boy sitting in my office making the same decision that this boy made. The boy in my office now is making a decision should he throw over his family values and live a perverted lifestyle the rest of his life at 16 and a half? Or should he 
put himself back under the authority of his parents and the authority of Scripture. Well, I'm getting nowhere with this boy. And you can't make people change. You know, if there's not a desire to change, and all of a sudden I go to the answer machine and I punch the answer machine in the morning if I get my calls done and I've got some free time before 8 o'clock, I, I listen and I heard a voice and I said, that's the boy that was here a year and a half ago. And I called him on the phone. I said, Mr. Logan, uh, I know you've cared for me for a year and a half and I always knew I could call you and I could let you know I've come back home and I've asked my father's forgiveness and my mother's forgiveness for hurting them. And he said, you know that I chose to live a perverted lifestyle. And Mr. Logan, I am now 18, and I have HIV, and I have 10 years to live. I said, would you share this? There's a boy in my office right now, and also a medical doctor I was counseling in the afternoon. I said, there's a boy in my office that will come in now. Uh, would you be willing to share your testimony with this boy? That you made this choice, you walked out in rebellion, and now, See, teenagers do not look at the long-range consequences of their decisions. That's why they have parents. Do you know that? That's why. I mean, I don't know why parents are given teenagers, but I know why teenagers are given parents. Do you know how to raise a junior high kid? It's real simple. You put them in a deep freeze for three years, defrost them, and you've got no problems. You know? <laughs> but, and so this boy said, I'm not going to talk to him. I'm, not, I'm really a laid-back counselor. I'm not very aggressive. And I said, yes, you are. And I said, you're going to sit in that seat, my desk. You sit there, I'm calling this fellow, and you're going to talk to him. He said, I'll sit, but I'm not going to talk to him. I said, fine. So I called this fellow, and I said, all right, he's here. Would you give him your testimony? You know, here you're making the same decision uh, that he made, you know, a year and a half ago, and now you're going to be dying of this horrible disease. Would you share it with him? So I went out in the hallway. I was out there for an hour and a half. I thought, this is good. And the kid comes out. That's sitting there and he walks out in the hallway and he looks at me and he said, Mr. Logan, I see no relevance to that conversation. You ever wanted to hit somebody? You know, it just, you know, Otto hits the natives and I hit my counselees. <laughs> I'll knock some sense in you. <laughs> Isn't that sad? And that boy has not changed. The other boy is under his folks' authority and he's really doing well. But he's going to die. He knows he's going to die. But he's doing well. But uh, before we get it, that's not a missionary kid. That's just a Christian family's uh, boy, a family that's really committed to godliness and to godly principles for their family. But we want to introduce our committee. We're going to have, I mean, our panel. They're going to come up and tell you who they are. There's some new faces here and what they do. And then I'd like to just share a couple of stories of some children and missionaries I just pulled them out of my testimonies. In fact, if you got my prayer letter, you got the testimony of that boy because he wrote his own testimony, the one dying of AIDS. He wrote the testimony to be put in my prayer letter. Come on up, Scott. We'll start with Scott and he'll tell you who he is and what he does. I'm Scott and I teach. Do you have children? I have three girls, uh, seven, five, and three. I was asked by a student, uh, I teach a course in spiritual warfare at Wheaton College, was asked by a student about six weeks ago, do you ever come under attack when you teach this course? And I kind of glibly said, well, no, not really. I haven't. Had, I think it's because I'm prayed up. You know, a little bit of pride in there in, in keeping things straight. Well, the next three weeks, my kids were not in school. They were sick all three weeks. Uh, we started going through some real stresses and struggles at home. And all of a sudden, I realized, hey, I'm facing this with pride. I'm not on my knees before the Lord. And it was a reminder to me, yeah, I've got some definite responsibilities in this area. And Satan's waiting for a door to open. And if I open the door... He's going to walk in. 
Um, my name is Carl Bob. I minister with Freedom in Christ Ministries in uh, Europe, currently living in Switzerland. Um, I'm so nervous, I just went to Walgreens and brought some, bought some Dramamine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to sleep. I, no, seriously, when, uh, when Dan asked me to, to be on this panel, I really felt kind of overwhelmed. I've been serving the Lord for about 10 years and seen God do some wonderful things in people's lives, but felt that I haven't been able to really draw the conclusions that maybe I need to have drawn here. But, uh, Dan told me why he wanted me to be on this panel, and that's because of his skis. You see, I'm his ski instructor and was director of a mountaineering program. And he says that every time his skis, when he goes skiing, he has problems with them. So he figures they're demon-possessed or something. I don't know. Um, I told him I can't really help him with, uh, with that, but uh, we'll see what happens today. Appreciate your prayer, and uh, don't ask me any questions. <laughs> I'm Gerald McGraw. I was born in Pennsylvania. I've been a missionary to the Confederacy for 26 years. <laughs> they cook the green beans to death. They haven't discovered green peas yet. Peas mean black-eyed peas, of course. Uh, I teach at Toccoa Falls College. Uh, I have the privilege of teaching a course in uh, Church and Angels uh, every year and another course called Power Encounter. And uh, I have had the opportunity of, of teaching at, at two different places, uh, one of them uh, six times and one once, uh, on a graduate level also in Power Encounter. Uh, we've had a, a ministry of deliverance for uh, 23 years, and uh, the Lord has blessed, and uh, we've uh, grown uh, in that work, I trust, uh, starting very, very green without any understanding. Uh, but the Lord sees you through. Uh, when you know you need to launch out, launch out. <laughs> How many children do you have? Uh, two at last count. Uh, they're both well-grown and uh, in in positions of their own. Uh, do grandchildren count? Four grandchildren, another coming in April. <laughs> Otto. It's really Otto. It's O-T-T-O, -T -T -O, Otto. Mr. Otto. <laughs> I'm Otto Koning. <laughs> and I live in Oak Brook, Illinois. And I've got four children between 20 and 30. They're all grown. And uh, I go around the country telling people how I blew it. And I'm sure glad we got a couple of doctors on this panel. Hope they have some answers. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Clint Arnold. Uh, I teach at Biola University out in earthquake country and flake country and wherever else you want to call it out there in L.A. Um, I'm married to a wonderful lady, Barbara, and we have three children. And we're helping the world population balance here because uh, Scott's got three girls. I've got three boys, eight, five, and two, and maybe... <laughs> Maybe something, you know? I, I told him we can start talking, but he's got to bring a few cows before negotiating. <laughs> oh. Well, I did grow up on a farm. We, uh, yeah, so. <laughs> there was, uh, I taught premarital counseling, and, and there was this uh, film out about, I can't think of the name of it, it's about this Hawaiian fellow, 
What's the name of that? It's going to put the cows. Johnny, Johnny Quick or something. Johnny something rather. Anyway, in this in this uh, movie, he marries this. He has this girlfriend that's really ugly, Hana Hawana or something or other, and she's real ugly and everything. And so he goes to negotiate with her dad, and he gives the dad eight cows for this girl. And then they get married, and they go on their honeymoon. And when they come back, the, the trader, he, he orders a mirror, and he goes back to see why he would give eight cows. I mean, no one's ever, one woman says, well, I'm a four-cow woman. And another woman says, well, I'm a four-cow and a calf. <laughs> and they're all talking, and he's going to, how many cows are you going to give for? Well, he gives six cows. Well, anyway, he, this trader comes out with a mirror, and out comes this gal, and she's radiant because she knows that she's worth more than any other women on the island. And so at Calvary, where I was teaching at the Bible College, when fellow, when a fellow's girlfriend had a birthday, there would be signs up, a 10-cow woman, <laughs> a 12-cow woman. <laughs> I'm Dean Hostetler, Napa, Indiana. I'm the least educated of the panel. The only degrees that I have is a BA I got from the Lord. I'm a retired businessman with four sons. The oldest is a pastor in the Church of the Brethren in Kalamazoo, Michigan. The second one had the misfortune of breaking his neck swimming when he was 21. He lives in a nursing home in Goshen, Indiana. The third one has the family business he and I shared for many years. He was a better businessman than I. He's made a lot more money than I have. The youngest in his family are in Mali, West Africa, with Wycliffe's, with the Jaw tribe. Another factor that is unique in our particular denominational structure, the historical theologian to seminary in Elkhart was John C. Wanger. He had the equivalent of four PhDs in training. Been a personal friend most of my life. One day I said to John, it is good to be on the same level that you are. He said, how's that? We are equal on most. That you are the most published Mennonite in history, I am the most investigated. John about came apart. <laughs> Having grown up in a similar background than what Jim was telling about, came a point in my life where I realized the scriptures had more to say than what I had been taught. And I began to look at them. I saw the practices of my community, which involved three forms of sorcery, which no one protested because they worked, therefore they were gifts of God. I saw miracles taking place, but I couldn't reconcile the lives of the people that practiced them with them being Christian. So I began to pay attention. Subsequently, I made the acquaintance of Dr. Kurt Koch, the German theologian, Traveled with him for five weeks in the Caribbean area was an enlightening experience. Today I spend a lot of my time helping people to freedom from demonic bondage to freedom in Christ.
as I said, what's exciting now, as I said a lot, uh, to one of the groups, that missionary biographies now, they're including more of some of the struggles that they're going through, which helps other missionaries to realize mm-hmm. that when you go into a culture where the people themselves have given them over to spirits, you're going into some real heavy-duty areas. And I need to realize that through there, spirits are only spirits of influence, but if I don't know what I'm being influenced by, and I don't resist that influence, I'm in trouble. Right? I, you know, I, if I just think this is just feelings I have and so on. Richard Webster, who has been 72 years in, is he is he with team? He's also with team. He's been in Taiwan. He's 72. He's going to retire in about two years. He's 70 now. Or okay, retire at 74. He's been 40 some years a missionary with team in Taiwan, and uh, he's got some very interesting books and his uh, stories in there about how his children came under attack and how he's learning about warfare many years ago when a team missionary was not supposed to be dabbling in that kind of thing. But uh, his little boy was waking up at night was screaming. Now, we get this a lot. These are called night terrors. We get families calling us where the kids are waking up screaming, but they're not awake, and they're screaming. You can't wake them up, and they have these terrible, terrible night terrors. They're afraid, and so on. And so finally, he said, and this boy was uh, trying to cut this down here. Uh, he wasn't very old. I can't remember how old the boy was. Just, I should have marked it. But anyway, he said, I finally realized this little boy, what he needed was his own sword. So I began helping him to memorize a few scripture verses, such as the Lord is my shepherd, Jesus is Lord, God is love, etc. In short order, these attacks cease and did not return. Our sword is a mighty sharp and powerful instrument. How vital to develop the skill in using it, even in a young child. And I can't tell you how many young children are standing against the enemy because children believe. If God says the enemy hasn't got a right to be there, then children believe that. And so when something comes, they tell it to go, and it leaves. Um, this is uh, one of, this this is so typical, and this is so tragic. This was in one of my prayer letters a while back. And this is when I didn't understand warfare, and here I was supposedly giving good counsel to missionaries and their kids. I was introduced to heavy rock music when I was 12. The main reason I started was to be rebellious towards my mom and dad. As time passed, I got into satanic music. This is not your normal pop music that you hear on the radio. It's just as bad. These stars only accept Satan as Lord of their life. Some of the most popular ones were Iron Maiden, Motley Crue, Blue Oyster, Cult, Kiss, ACDC, Led Zeppelin, and so on. Some of these may sound familiar. These groups, the songs they sang in which they denounced God and practiced them. One record that is still vividly in my mind is a record recorded by Iron Maiden entitled The Number of the Beast. The cover of the record depicts a picture of a demon standing in the lake of fire. The back shows the group standing in a fire, smiling alongside a verse from Revelation. One of the most powerful songs is 666. Uh, just to give you a taste of what I'm talking about, I'm coming back, I will return, I'm going to possess your body, I'm going to make it burn. Interesting lyrics. Uh, this is the trash I listen to day in and day out. His father was the director of Eastern Europe. This is the trash I listen to day in and day out. Other songs had titles like See You in Hell, My Friend, Highway to Hell, Hell's Bells, etc. You want to know the saddest part of all this? 
The fact that regardless of what anyone says, doctors, psychiatrists, parents, teens, those songs stay with a person for the rest of their lives. I haven't listened to 666 in over five years or even seen the record, and yet I can still sing half the song if I want to. It has a, it's a great trick that Satan uses to get my mind off God. What's even worse is that these groups are getting worse. I seldom go into a record store anymore. I can't stand to read the group's names like Dead Church, Slayer, Grim Reaper, etc. This doesn't even get into the sex drugs mentioned in these songs. You pick up the words and the music without even trying. How does this all tie into demonic influence? It was through this music that I allowed demons to have a foothold in my life. In fact, the chief demon came into my life while I was sitting in my friend's room, this was in Austria, whose walls were covered with posters like the stars, listening to this music hours on end. What did I know about demonic angels, believe it or not, when I first began to listen to music, I didn't know about spiritual warfare. But when I was listening to the music, I could always feel a battle going on inside, sometimes even vision the battle before my eyes. When I went to parties, I could see beings or demons. However, I had never been educated in this area, so dismissed all that was just in ignorance. His father went to a very excellent Bible school. My daughters went there and taught that this is not real. So if a father doesn't believe in the reality of this, how do you teach your children the reality of this? And here his children are coming under attack. It gets more tragic. All of this occurred while I was an MK in Europe. I hated these. I hated being there. That was in Europe. I hated God for making my parents go there. Now, how would you like to minister, be in charge of all the Eastern Europe outreach, and your kids hate God because you're there? And these are young teenagers. You know, you don't do a real good job, do you? I mean, you can imagine the turmoil. Here, God is doing a marvelous work in those days in Eastern Europe, and yet here's your family, all this stuff going on. This built up an anger inside of me that would often be triggered by this music. I often thought about breaking bones in Mark. Mark is his brother. When I would fight with Mike, I tried the hardest to kill him. I am not exaggerating. I'm telling the truth. Now, here is a missionary son fighting with his two brothers. And the thoughts coming to his mind is to kill his brothers. Now, isn't that exciting? And you're trying to carry on a ministry with this going on in your house. When I got back to the, the States, things didn't change until I went to Bible school and couldn't listen to the music or go to parties. They came back from Eastern Europe, and I told the parents, if you go back, you'll lose your kids. Don't go back and head up the work. So Satan got the oldest son to pull the mom and dad out of ministry because they didn't dare go back. I mean, how can you minister and lose your kids? You can't do that. I mean, can you? I mean, I can't. Could you? How many of your kids are you? How many of your kids are you willing to give up for some some other people? You can't do it. So they did not go back to the mission field. I counseled with this young man. He was only fourteen at the time, and I didn't understand the enemy. I didn't realize that he was being totally influenced by demonic powers. It was so tragic to miss it. Then he said, "I changed my life around going to this Bible school, straightened things out. I watched him in church." Because we went to the same church. And I watched this teenager get worse and worse and worse. You know, he said one compliment to me. He said, Mr. Logan, 
I knew as my life was going downhill that you were watching me. And I knew this. I knew you cared about me. And I knew you would never reject me. And I knew if I ever wanted to get my life squared away, I could come to you and you'd be willing to have time for me. Well, he didn't want to get his life squared away. And it's so hard to watch a teenager throw his life away, a missionary's son throw his life away. And yet, when I got to college, when I got up there, it was hard to go straight. I couldn't concentrate on the Lord, didn't want to go to church, fell back to my old habits, decided making realist, realistic efforts to change. I thought of demons, but it, I ignored it because I've always been told that demons and Christians cannot mix. They were wrong. I had counseling with two godly Christian friends, and they cast them out. What was interesting is I trained navigators in Campus Crusade people on how to deal with demonized college students on the campus. This kid was thrown out of Bible school, went to a secular college, bumped into two fellows I trained, and guess who met with them? <laughs> and set this guy pretty much free. He said, but the pressure grew even more intense. Remember when you visit, I went to visit the college of all the students that we'd helped from this major college get free. They wanted me to go there, and so I went to the down to this big university and had a big meal, and all these kids met, and we had met in this one of the university hangouts, which is a horrible place. I mean, a horrible place for music. I mean, you could hardly talk. The restaurant was playing black, black ground, background music of rock. And we were having a good time. Soon a song by a satanic group is played, and you guys kept talking like nothing was wrong. But for me, the song was so loud I couldn't hear anything. I saw a huge battle taking place around me. Rock music is definitely an influence on my life. My own view is that it is one of the greatest tools next to sex and pornography that Satan is using to warp the minds of young people of the world. If they were not saved, it would be hard to be saved. If they are saved, they become useless for the Lord. Satan wins either way. What about Christian rock music? Honestly, I don't know. I'm confused whether it's right or wrong, but I know one thing. Since being free, I have not had the desire to listen to Christian rock music like I did before. What's happened to this fellow? whose family came home from the mission field, you know, discouraged, defeated, this, watching their son go downhill. This boy went through deliverance. He is now a missionary to missionaries' kids. He knows what it's like to be an MK. He's one of the finest young men that you'd want to meet. He's taken those ashes, given them to God, and God is giving this young man beauty. And God is using him now and he travels uh, to the missionary school, speaking to missionary kids, because he knows what it's like to be rebellious, to hate the God that your folks are serving and all this. And this guy is doing a super job. And some of the missionaries in here right now know this fellow very well and will attest uh, what a tremendous young man and a radiant Christian he is. But I feel here as the mission counselor, I could have helped this boy at 14, and I did not because I didn't recognize the enemy involvement. And he tried everything, and it just got worse and worse. And when the enemy's involved, regular counseling just doesn't work. And so I could read I have other stories here of missionaries, kids, and so on. But there's all kinds of battles going on. And maybe there's some uh, someone here that's had an experience that they'd like to share. And then we want to take questions from you. And since we, we have to walk up to the mic to answer the questions, but if you have anything you want to share that you've worked or your kids were overseas. Has there been any kind of stuff? Did your kids come under any kind of attack in, in the country? And often we pray for missionaries. And this fellow, this missionary, the thing he started was to get people to pray for missionaries' kids. 
you know, to pray for them. And he kept giving out illustrations and sending out material about these kids. Pray for the kids. Because his mom and dad are super Christians. They've been super Christians. They've been, they've been consistent. But the enemy was just sifting their family. And uh, so he's burdened that people would pray for missionaries' kids. Are there any comments here before we take questions? Otto, you got anything to say? You raised your kids with cannibals. Yes. Uh, I, uh, I, got, I got victory in this thing, freedom myself. Then two years later, my wife. And uh, then if he didn't start on the kids. And uh, my oldest son came once and uh, woke me up and said, Dad, there's, there's something in my room. And uh, I said, well, he would always sit in the classes where I taught the native uh, pastors. And he would learn right along with them. And I said, well, you've heard the teaching. Go back and resist him and tell him that the room belongs to you belong to God. And he says, no, I can't do that. Will you come with me? And I was so tempted to go with him. He's on the other side of the house. And I said, no. I said, Ottawa, you can do that yourself. You're, but he says, you're a big missionary daddy. I'm just a kid, you know. I said, no, that, that's not it. And he went. I don't think I would have, but he went. And, and, and the next morning, he was there at my bedside. And he said, Daddy, it works. It works. I said, well, what was that? He said, you know, I, I did what you said, and the demons left and never bothered me again. So uh, the children have authority. He was eight years old. Yeah. Yeah. When Jim was uh, discussing night terrors, I've had that situation. We got introduced to the reality of having to deal with dream lives. Up until uh, my first daughter was 10 months old, I thought dreams were really only a, I was a passive recipient of dreams. They were simply a product of pepperoni, uh, of unresolved emotional issues, or, or whatever. And so whatever came into my dream life, I, all I could do is receive it. There was nothing I could really do about it until at 10 months old, my young, oldest daughter, my only daughter at that point in time, started waking up screaming. Now at 10 months, she couldn't articulate to us what she was screaming about, but we knew enough to know the difference between screams of hunger and screams of fright. This went on for a week. Uh, every night, she'd wake up screaming, and my wife said, finally, you know, at this age, I've heard they start having bad dreams. And I said, well, I know one source of bad dreams. So that night, and again, she's 10 months old. She's not old enough to understand what's going on, but I, as her daddy, said, Jesus, you're in charge of her dream life tonight. And we give that over to you, and we ask you to be in control. And Satan, we resist any attempts on your part to interfere with her dreams. And she slept peacefully for the first night in a week. And we started recognizing that that didn't just apply to our daughter. It applied to us. And while we have not been prone to regular occurrences of nightmares or bad dreams, they were there. And when we began to take a practice, not a ritual, but a daily practice of giving our dream lives over to the Lord, if there are things to process, Lord, I want to process them. I don't want to shut down my dream life. But neither do I want an inappropriate influence from the enemy on our dreams. I have seen the gross dreams, the scary dreams, shut off completely. Uh, our children almost never have nightmares. They don't have night terrors because we take the time to bring their dream lives before the Lord. In addition, we don't influence them by allowing them to watch gross things on TV and, and give them the opportunity to understand what monsters are and things like this. But we take the authority that we have, and I believe I see this after Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And the boy who's having problems with epileptic seizures, Jesus does not talk to the boy. 
to say, do you believe? He talks to the father and says, do you believe? The father has the responsibility there to believe on the boy's behalf and to take his stance in Christ. You hit it. If you're a dad and you're having problems, you don't want to call me on the phone with your children. Because I always ask this the fathers. I say this. Can I ask you a personal question? And they know what's coming. Because a lot of these dads have heard me speak through my whole thing. And they say, uh, yes, you can ask. I said, how are you doing in your own personal life? Usually I say, how are you doing in your own personal moral life? And they break down and cry. The enemy's got them bound, and he's wiping out their kids. With all kinds of destructive stuff. In fact, we often, you'd be amazed how fathers and sons come to my office to be set free together. Because the dad really understands that he's been bound. And the kids are having destructive temptations. But I want to share a couple of verses with you. And I don't believe we're proof texting here. Psalms 3, we're talking about sleep. and I, Psalms 3 and Psalms 4 are the sleep psalms. And um, I like what Psalms 3, 5 says, I will lay me down and sleep, I awaken, for the Lord sustained me. Psalms 4 is a tremendous psalm. I mean, David had enemies. I mean, David's sleeping upstairs while his kids are planning to kill him downstairs. You know, that is not conducive to good sleep. <laughs> now, I, I don't know how David, you know, you think, how could David do it? And when you, you read Psalms 4, it's just, Unbelievable, but I love Psalms 4.8. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. How can he do that? For thou, Lord, only makes me to dwell in safety. See, God is my protector even when I sleep. Now, I don't, I mean, at night, you should see, my wife and I have a routine. We come in, I stand back with a flashlight, she opens the raises up the, the, the bedspread. I shine the flashlight under and I command the spirits under our bed to leave. No, I don't do that stuff. <laughs> but there are people that do that stuff. And there's a balance. You know what I'm saying? There is a balance. That's weird. But there's nothing saying, Lord, guard me as I sleep in you tonight. And you know that uh, a man that have had terrible sexual addictions and teenagers with sexual addictions once they come to freedom and they begin to have one of those violent sexual dreams that they've turned them off in the name of Jesus and their sleep they've stopped them they didn't go on the the stuff that used to go on they just God just seemed to give them that ability right there to say I refuse to keep dreaming this wicked dream it's amazing you know when 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 we stand with God it's amazing that our minds don't have to be I mean we're pretty much at the mercy of the enemy. If God doesn't protect us, we're sleeping, right? And I don't know where we go when we go to sleep, but wherever we go, we're not there, right? And boy, the enemy can bombard us, and God can protect our mind and protect our children. People praying over their children, praying over their beds, we, we have a lot of that. In fact, if you have a small child that's under attack, and we get a lot of that, little children that are under attack, we encourage the parents... To pray over the sleeping child. Not over the awakened child. Although I had a little child brought to the mission by missionary grandparents. She frightened our receptionist at CEF. We, had and, we have about 120 employees there. And when this little girl saw me, she, she put her hands up and she went, Leah! Right. Four years old. 
and our receptionist went, ah! <laughs> 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 and I, I, it startled me. I mean, what? I just walked up to this little girl, and it was just awful the way she treated me. And her, her grandmother's crying. Missionaries are crying. Here's our granddaughter. Obviously, this is not normal behavior. And strange things she was doing. And I just took that little girl and I took the wordless book and I went through, that's, you know, CEF. You know where uh, CEF got the wordless book? Do you know who started the wordless book? Who is that preacher in England? Spurgeon. Spurgeon is the first reference we have of using the wordless book. So you're in good company if you know how to use Spurgeon and, and Doug Ham and others if you use the wordless book. But I took the wordless book and I explained the plane of salvation to this little girl, although she claimed to be a Christian. I went over it again and, and she understood. And then I used the wordless book and explained warfare with those colored pages. The page of darkness, what did it say in Jude about those the spirits of darkness foaming out their shame and so on and how the blood of Christ defeated them and God is in heaven on the gold pages. So, I mean, just use those pages. And uh, and I said, I am going to, because I thought, what do I do? I mean, I've got this girl and she's doing strange things. And I'm just going to look at her. I said, I'm looking at you, but I'm not talking to you. Can you understand that? And I said, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command anything in or around this child to leave and to go where Jesus Christ sends it. And it was just that simple. Because I asked her, I said, do you want anything of the enemy in your life? She said, no. But her dad was really into a lot of weird stuff. The little girl ran out in the hallway, just turned around and ran out. I thought, what happened? You know, she didn't fall down. She didn't fall. She didn't do anything. I just prayed and she ran out in the hallway. And I walked out in the hallway and she ran up and she threw her arms around my legs and put her head and rested her head on my leg. And her mother and her grandmother stood crying in the hallway. Because when she would see me, she would react violently. Something had happened when we prayed over that little girl. Her dad was into satanic, strange kinds of things. That we need, I mean, I don't like doing that, but what can we do? I mean, she was not sleeping. She was awake. They're going to take her away. She was in destructive behavior. Uh, there is a, a woman here. This little boy looked at her. He's two and a half. And he said, I'm going to take a butcher knife. He was not angry and stab you. The mother was extremely frightened. And I can't tell you how many little children under four have threatened to kill their parents, not in anger. That is not normal. And we're talking about, I don't see weird, I see only Christian parents, uh, Christian families, and missionary families. And we've had missionary kids threaten their parents. And we're talking about little children with doing weird things. Okay, someone else have something to say? Okay. Carol? Uh, when our son was pretty young why he would uh, get scared at night like lots of children do uh he was worried about beacons you know how they swirl around boy beacons were something pretty awful and he also said that he was afraid tigers would get him and of course uh we told him that there weren't any tigers roaming loose in the united states and uh he said well i've seen them in the zoo what if they'd get out of there <laughs> so you know you can't argue uh, logic <laughs> Uh, by that time, we had learned uh, a lot of things from Ernest Rockstead's cassettes. Rockstead is the uh, major pioneer, uh, the granddaddy of the deliverance movement in America. And uh, Ernest Rockstead 
gave directions for what to do in submitting your mind to the Lord before you go to sleep. And so we explained the principle to him. And then night after night, as he said his prayers, why he uh, would, on his own, say, I submit my conscious mind to you, dear Lord, and my subconscious mind to you. I resist Satan in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please help me not to have any bad dreams. And the Lord took care of those dreams. And uh, now he's uh, serving the Lord faithfully with his wife and uh, their son. And uh, we're real proud of him. Uh, I'd like to relate one other instance from our counseling. A young lady that I'll call uh, Jeannie uh, came to us as a college student and was uh, needing a prayer session for deliverance. In the course of our work with her, we found a demonic spirit that had entered her at age five. Her parents were missionaries in Africa. Uh, at age five, the parents were working with a demonized national uh, in their home. And this little five-year-old became very frightened of that. Uh, it was really, I guess the demon said it was a vague fear that she had, but that was sufficient ground that he was able to worm his way in. Why do I tell you that? Uh, it's better to tell you the good story, isn't it, <laughs> of our kids. But uh, I tell you, I think, because uh, I believe that we need to be cautious about our own children and uh, be able to minister to them as well as to minister to the people who have needs. Uh, even a little child needs to know a little something of what's going on and that they can trust Jesus totally rather than being overwhelmed by the powers of darkness. As we work with demonic spirits, we always make a, a series of commands. I know many of you do. We make uh, routinely a series of commands, including the command uh, against any wicked spirit uh, bothering any of our own household or the households of the intercessors. I think this is very profitable. Uh, so our kids uh, from pretty young ages uh, grew up uh, in the midst of working with the demonic. We did that in our own home uh, most all the time, uh, you know, weekly, sometimes several times a week. But uh, they were have, have never had uh, any serious results of that that we've ever been able to trace. So I think we can, uh, you know, explain to the children, uh, help them and uh, they can remain free. Uh, it was my kids that told me they didn't think they should celebrate Halloween anymore. And they were right. I didn't know any better. Uh, I celebrated it when I was a kid, didn't you? But I didn't realize what was going on in it. So they were alert to those issues and uh, knew that uh, they didn't have to be afraid of Satan, but they weren't going to honor him either. I, he's sharing, and I, I think we ought to share this with missionaries. I was uh, doing a, a thing at one of the major Bible colleges, and one of the directors of a mission came to me and said, would you see my daughter? She's really in trouble. And uh, this girl grew up in the mission field. She went to uh, missionary school, had graduated from a major Bible college. She had just been out of school two years. She had been arrested twice for prostitution. She was a drug addict. She was an alcoholic. She had had five abortions. She, um, see, I left some stuff out. 
Oh, she had been involved in pornography movies and also for pornography magazines. Uh, she was having nightmares and blood had run down from the ceilings. That was a clue that I didn't understand at the time. She was having all this blood stuff running down. Uh, and they're going, what happened? Just two years, you know, out of school. What took place? Well, we asked them to bring her to our mission, and they brought her to our mission. And uh, the father came with her, and he was sitting across from her, and I was so nervous. I had never done anything like this before. This is one of the very first people that I've ever dealt with. But what can you do? I mean, that's not normal. Something is radically wrong. So I sat there, and I began to pray, and a voice spoke out of this girl. Her hair went down. She was in her, like, 20 or 21. Her hair went down, and she threw her hair her head back, and when she looked, I'd never seen that look before. I've seen it a lot of times, but you know the look I'm talking about. Have you seen that look in someone's eyes? It's so creepy. She looked at her father, and a voice spoke out of this girl. It frightened me. I never heard a voice speak out of anybody. Well, that, that one missionary, but I wasn't used to it. And this voice spoke out of her, and it said, I will destroy your ministry. Right to the dad. And the dad said, no, you won't. I resist you in the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm like, yay for the dad! That's <laughs> <laughs> But here the enemy was attacking this girl, and we thought, how did this happen? I mean, how could a how could a missionary girl raised on the mission field, his mom and dad, and he's a high up in a mucky muck in missions? You know what happened? When they went into the tribe, they the, their their policy was to adopt a family. Now this is what we found out later on. And they adopted the family, what they didn't realize, they didn't adopt the whatever it would be, Juju Man or whatever, Juju's Africa, but whatever. But they adopted someone who was basically into white magic. You know, the man that uses his powers for good rather than evil, although he will use them for evil. They didn't realize that. And as their daughter was playing around, she would go over to the home. As a little girl, she grew up and watched her adopted grandmother and grandfather do their spirit activities and got caught up in all of that. And boy, the enemy just did a, a terrible number on that girl. And so, I mean, can God protect your children on the mission field? But probably not in the United States. I mean, you need more prayer here. <laughs> yeah, he can protect, but what do we need to do? To be alert parents. We need to watch. We don't need to just let them go. I mean, you let your kids run anywhere? Well, let me give you some things not to do. Now, you're going to think I'm real squeaky, and that's okay. I am squeaky. I would not allow your children to sleep overnight at anybody's house. And if you don't agree with me, come to my office, answer my phone, and how many children were sexually and ritually abused in homes of neighbors, church people. Well, he's really a nice dad. He wears a blue suit and carries a Bible. But the other thing he does is he touches girls in the wrong way. That's his only problem. I'll tell you, I would rather grow up. I mean, I would grow up. I'm grown up. I would rather my children grow up. My wife doesn't think I'm. I'd rather my children grow up and say, Dad, I think you were too strict. Then, Dad, why did you allow us to go over there? And that stuff was going on. And it, it is so prevalent today. It's sad. I, you know, I, I, and and I wouldn't want anyone to stay overnight at our house. I would like them to go back home. You know, go to their house, go back. I'm not talking about relatives, but even relatives. You've got to be careful. There's so much of this today. And I know we have a psychiatrist's uh, wife and son sitting here, and they'll agree with us. He was running the Minerth Meyer Clinic. Their dad is the one that wrote the addiction of rock music. He ran the Minerth Meyer Clinic in, in, in Chicago. How many sexual abuse cases did you run through that clinic? Probably have no idea just how many. Just almost everybody that comes to our office, I assume they've been sexually abused. 
I just assume that that's one of the struggles that they're having that took place when they were young. So, you know, don't, don't be frightened. Don't make your kids afraid, but you can be, what, a wise parent. Just say, you know, I think I'd like you to come home tonight. Rather than staying in this home, we really don't know those people. And it's probably better you stay at our house. Someone else want to share something, and then we'll take a question. There is some basic information that every Christian should have, whether you're a missionary or whether you're a person sitting in the pews of the local church. This little book you'll find out there in the bookstore, The Authority of the Believer, there is no equal to it. It's worth its weight in gold by J.A. McMillan. Dr. McGraw here trained under Dr. McMillan in his declining years at NIAC. Indispensable. Read it. This one, War on the Saints, done by Jesse Penn Lewis, 1911. Do not get the abridged edition. It's worthless. <laughs> the abridgers did not believe that Christians could be afflicted with wicked spirits. This is full text, which was the thesis of Mrs. Lewis. The fourth chapter in this book on the passive mind, there's no other thing in print like it that I know of. I have learned over the years, 60% of the people sitting in the pews of your church have touched the occult realm, either personally or ancestrally, and have never dealt with it. it accounts for an overwhelming amount of dead wood in the church. Every culture has something that informs it. Ever see any of that? Pennsylvania Dutch hex signs. Said to be folk art. Uh-uh. Focal points for wicked spirits. Same with the Zodiac. And I'm amazed at the amount of church members that order their lives by the Zodiac. It fell my lot in life to serve as resource person for Timothy Warner when he taught a course at Trinity Seminary for a few years titled Power Encounter. One particular year, the head of one of the large mission boards in this country was in that course. He was an outspoken Calvinist, and if he disagreed with something that we had to say, he let you know it in no uncertain terms. Second day that the class was in session, he asked, may I take you out to supper tomorrow night? I said, certainly. He showed up with six other students from the course, and we had a lot more going in supper that night. Among other things, he told me about the problems of his adopted son. He was 14 years of age, Iranian by birth. They got him as a baby. He said, this son of mine is incorrigible, vicious, vile, foul-mouthed, lies, steals, failure in school. And I know that he's bright. He told me a few other things, and finally I said to him, in my judgment, the son was treated with healing magic before you got him. If it's not there, it's in the near ancestry. And he said, I can't buy that. He said, well, you ask. I gave you my opinion. The question plagued him and plagued him and plagued him and plagued him. Nine months later, out in the eastern seaboard, he finally went to the bishop of his denomination and said to him, what I had told him. 
Moreover, I said I'd work at that while the boy is asleep. It'll keep him out of the picture. The demons don't sleep. The bishop finally agreed that that approach could harm nothing. So the following night, the bishop, this brother, and his wife went to the bedside of the boy. And in a voice just above a whisper, they began to address the powers of darkness and the authority of Jesus' name. They stayed with that for about ten minutes and felt a check within themselves. There was nothing dramatic about it. The next morning on, had brand new son. He went from an F to an A in school overnight. The school teachers came out to inquire what happened here. This brother later told Dr. Warner, with tears streaming down his face, that one instant alone was worth every cent I spent on this course, plus all the travel. One of the great problems that I see in the Christian church, missionaries using divining rods on the field, The average pastor, and I have no rock to throw and no axe to grind, the average pastor cannot define the term sorcery, let alone having ever preached the first sermon to his congregation on it. And as a result, we have lots of problems that are based on demonic stuff. We... Uh have parents ask their children when they call and their children are having problems, we ask your children this. And I remember a lawyer's wife called, a little boy tried to commit suicide, tried, he was three years old, tried to throw himself off the balcony. And, uh, and so uh, she, she says, when should I ask him? And I said, well, ask him when you're, just when it's, ask him this question when, it, when you feel it's the right time. When you talk to little children, it's got to be the right timing. There's the intimate time, you know, and they, you can't plan them, they just happen. I said, ask your children these two questions. Do you ever hear anything that no one else hears? Or do you ever see things that no one else sees? I had a missionary son, seven years old, sitting in my office. I asked him that question. Do you ever see things that no one else sees? First of all, do you ever hear things no one else hears? Yep. Do you ever see things no one else sees? Yep. I said, what? He said, my friend on the couch. He has a spirit guide. But he said, Mr. Logan, he's not bad. And I knew I couldn't tell him he was bad. So I cried out to God, what do you do? He's being deceived. And um, all of a sudden, I was talking and sharing things with him. And I have a lot of stuff from all over the world in my office, a lot of Indian stuff and things that these different Indian tribes have given me in different places of the world. And I was explaining this stuff to him. And all of a sudden, he wasn't paying attention to me. I said, you're not paying attention. He said, no. So what was going on? He said, my friend's talking to me. I said, what did he say? And this guy, all he knew, I was a, was a talk doctor, not a shot doctor. And uh, so he wasn't afraid. And this, um, this, this voice or this friend sitting on the couch said, get up and leave. Go play in the waiting room. Whatever you do, don't let this man pray for you. That's what the seven-year-old missionary son told me. And I said, is there anything wrong with me praying for you? He said, no. I said, well, then is... Can this be good? He said, he isn't good, is he? I said, no. And he came with him from Brazil. I said, why don't you send him away? And the boy said, okay. In Jesus' name? I said, yeah. So he said, in the name of the Lord Jesus, leave. And I said, what happened? He said, well, he went out. 
And he, and he said, right through the door. And you know, he didn't come back all week. My little boy sent him away. He was gone. Well, I share this at seminars with parents a lot. You know, ask your child that question at the right time. Last year, an emergency room doctor came to me and his wife and he said, you know, we heard you share this at the uh, University of Tennessee. And uh, I told my husband, boy, if any kids are hearing stuff, our kids are going to hear stuff. Because uh, we live in this creepy house. She said, our house is so creepy, it's so old, Mr. Logan. And she said, uh, when we go home, we got to ask the boys, do they ever hear anything? So, okay. So they went home and they said, she was, they were real nervous. Because what do they do if they do, you know? And she said, do you ever see anything, uh, you know, uh, that no one else sees around here? And the boys said they were like seven, six, and five, the, the older one. Nope. Do you ever hear things that no one else hears? Yes. That's exactly what they did. They said, yeah, we, we hear voices. He said, well, where, where do you hear the voices? We, we always hear them. In the backyard. Come right outside and you'll hear them. And so the mom and dad went outside. The doctor and his wife went outside. And down the street was a Ford dealership. And they heard, Lolly, Lolly, lot one. <laughs> I was going to scare you, didn't I? <laughs> Oh, we've, we've got a question here. We've got a question here. We need to, you know, when you do warfare's teaching, you got to laugh at times. It's heavy-duty stuff, but remember the enemy's defeated. When I teach warfare, I spend more time on the verses that show that the enemy's defeated than I do on the enemy, but we need to resist him. Why are we told to resist him if he doesn't exist? Why are we told in James 4 and Peter 5, resist the devil, if there's no reason to? Why are we told to put on the armor if there's no purpose for it? You know, why? Why did Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, he said, you know, I've come to find out about you lest the tempter tempted you and our labor would have been in vain. Go through the scriptures. Look at what it says about what the enemy does to the church and the people in the church and the members of the church and so on. In Africa, I do understand some things about Africa. I've been to Africa different, uh, and ministered over there and studied and worked with Africans. And I know that in Africa, birthdays are very special, especially if you have twins, because you go to the Juju man, and he takes a trip and to find out how to celebrate the birthday of twins. And when you go to this man and he takes, goes into his trance and comes back, you must do everything he says or you're in trouble. And, the, and you celebrate exactly as he tells you, and you're paying so much money. The last thing that happens is the boys put calabashes on their head full of water, and they dance. And when they dance, the spirit comes on them. They're real happy. The birthday spirit comes on the boys. And not a drop of water will come out of these calabashes on these boys' heads. These big, huge, like a, almost a wash tub full of water. Not a drop falls out of it. And then the enemy tells them exactly how to get rid of it. And so every year, they have to find out how to celebrate the birthday. Okay, on this, and we've got uh, an African specialist over here. Uh, <laughs> our three boys were born in Africa. The middle one has terrible nightmares, critical illnesses on earthly birthdays. Every time he had a birthday, he had nightmares and sickness. He's 24 now, loves Jesus, preparing for the mission field. Um, is birthday affliction common? Our African expert, Scott 
Yeah. The, the guy that teaches at Trinity, Scott. No, I teach at Wheaton. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went to school at Trinity, but I teach at Wheaton. I'd say this. Uh, one of the things we ended up doing in East Africa was we used to announce when everybody's birthday was in our little news list that went around uh, until I talked to the Africans about it, and they were a bit embarrassed about it. It wasn't a magical issue there, though. It was because that was an inappropriate thing to put forth in the public arena. So it was more of a social explanation than a spiritual explanation. I didn't see the birthday side of things on the East African side of the continent. What about on West Africa? I read a book on the spirits on East Africa and West Africa, a little different, but same stuff. Different, I'd say in East Africa, I didn't see the significance attached to birthdays. One of the things I want to note here, and I want to tie into what Dr. Arnold mentioned last night, we need to be alert, but we don't need to be Christian magicians. And we need to be extremely careful that we're not falling into the trap where we're like a dog chasing its tail and spinning ourselves on our heel and getting so dizzy tracing every single thing that we lose track of the fact that we're to serve the Lord rather than to just try and spend all of our energy fighting Satan. Now, in in a case like this, I would say, Satan, you don't have authority over my birthday. The boy's 24-year-old. I mean, the man is 24 years old. He can say that. Here, and okay. I I see a lot of satanic issues related to birthdays, but I didn't see it culturally. So somebody else, maybe with West African experience, might be able to, to deal with that one. Okay. Are you from West Africa or West, West Africa? Africa. At times, you can find issues related to things such as curses. If someone didn't like the work that was being done, and they they know the boy was born, and they know Americans make a special deal of birthdays. Now, I don't know, did did they make a special event of birthdays there where you were? Okay. So there have been, may, may have been issues related to that. They Uh, there was a question right here. That's really excellent. That's an excellent thing. That, and that's why this boy hated being on the field because he, he felt when he came home he was a stranger in his own country. Of the country, right. Right, and that's something parents need to work through and work with the kids. And I think if you can include the kids in your ministry to make them feel they're a part of the ministry. We know a mission director whose daughters, all of them, turned against them because the mom and dad, they had to make appointments to talk to the mom and dad on the field. And it's just, and it's tragic. Go ahead, Carl. Yeah, I've just recently read a doctoral dissertation by a friend of mine, Dr. Walt Stewart, who works at the Black Forest Academy and he works with missionary kids. And uh, just a few loose statistics I've still got kind of got running around in my mind is that uh, missionaries who have been out of the missionary MK mode, in other words, grown children who were MKs, who had been away from it over 20 years, 95% of them that were interviewed said that they found being an MK, a privilege, and was a positive experience. 
Current statistics of MKs that are currently living in schools abroad, 77% of them find being an MK a privilege and a joy. Just to bring kind of in balance some of the stories we're hearing, because, you know, we can say things like typical MK and typical PK, because we look at the problems, and we're like that as human beings. We like to point out the problems, and of course, that's what we're dealing with in this, in this forum, and that's important to do. I don't want to negate that. I just want to bring in a little word of encouragement that, that those 77% found it very positive and a privilege. And I think it was 12 or 15%, something like that, said that they found it as positive and good, but there were some difficulties. Less than 5% said that they felt it as negative or very negative. So just to, just to bring that in, in as well. And probably if you check it, you'll find it's how the folks handled it. Not so much how the kids handled it, but how mom and dad handled it. A friend of ours was reading uh, Pilgrim's Progress. There's a child's edition of Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, their, their three-year-old was in a restaurant with, these, with uh, the grandparents. And they walked by a lewdly dressed woman sitting at a table. And the little boy looked at her and said, I think she's a follower of the Wicked Prince. I think that's what they call him in that. <laughs> One day, the, they're teaching this little boy about spiritual warfare. The dad teaches in a Bible college, and the mother went in to discipline him, and the little one, the three-year-old, looked at her and said, in the name of Jesus, leave. <laughs> and the mom said, it won't work. <laughs> oh, my. Isn't it fun? I mean, you know, it's so cute when kids get a hold of something. All right. Okay, that was Rhonda's. Um, boy, this is this is amazing. I mean, this is so true. It says, "Can someone address how to handle subtle harassments and eruptions that come from the enemy before times of ministry?" Do you know when my wife and I would have our greatest struggles? When I was flying somewhere to teach people how to live, and I'd be on the airplane and I'm going, "This is stupid." If they only knew. They would say, why don't you get on the airplane and fly home? And all of a sudden, it dawned on me what was going on. Am I the only one that's had something like this? No, it's just, it's amazing. It really is amazing how that when you go, you know, when when people come to church, they're least ready to hear. They fought all the way. Then they get out of the car and they got their Bibles and they put on the Baptist smile. You know, we're the happy family and the kids are going, what a fakey group here and they really really struggle with all this so i mean this i think is so common when you're going to minister and things just don't go right i don't think that's an accident because remember jesus told us satan has a threefold plan steal kill and destroy what's he going to steal he's going to steal i know he can steal joy and all that but i think he steals more than that i think he wants to rob me because what does a thief steal something of value He wants to rob my life of having eternal significance. Get all wrapped up in self, the enemy, my messes, my problems. You know what I'm saying? Get just all wrapped up. And I'm robbed from my, I go all through life and no eternal significance. Can the enemy kill me without permission? I should put that in there, maybe. No. How does the enemy work that? He tells me to do it for him. And I can't tell you how many teenagers that we see have seriously considered ending their lives with the thoughts that come. What's the point of going on? You know, Ed Savoso's definition of a stronghold 
is a mindset impregnated with hopelessness that causes me to accept as unchangeable something is contrary to the will of God. And if my situation is hopeless, there's only one, one or two things I can do. Give myself over to it or end it all. Right? Is it hopeless with Christ? No. But we've been sold a bill of goods on the hopelessness. And it says, how can you teach kids, especially very young, three to five, to work together and stand firm on whatever? I'll turn it over to the experts. Anybody want to answer this one? Okay. <laughs> I was uh, waiting out Carl Bob and I won. <laughs> His reluctance to share, but I'm the last here. Uh, I'm still in process. My kids are eight, five, and two, as I've indicated before. But uh, one thing that's been very important to me is, is I want to be involved in their lives and I want to know where they're at. And I, it just amazes me how many men in the church kind of opt out of the early years of their kids' lives. And um, we had an experience just recently that uh, wasn't uh, necessarily demonically related, but my uh, uh, son, we have this agreement, uh, or my wife has agreement with a lady that brings uh, our kids home that uh, she waits in the car because she's got a load of kids. And uh, she drops him off. And if the front door is unlocked, he just goes in and my wife's home. Well, we had an emergency, I guess, with one of our littler ones. And my wife raced out of the house and took the one, the little ones to the hospital and left the door unlocked. And for an eight-year-old to come home, and it's the very first time this has ever happened, he came home, he walked in the house, Mom? Mom? They made a movie of it. Home Alone, <laughs> home alone. yeah, you got it. <laughs> He walked all through the house, checked every room out, walked outside, walked in the place where I have my office out back. Nobody was home, and he was petrified. And the thing that touches my heart the most is he said, the first thing I did was pray. <laughs> Praise God. And I uh, partly attribute this. Uh, we spend a lot of time just uh, uh, trying to ingest the Bible together and, and just work through the Bible and then just talk about, you know, what does all this stuff mean and what should we do and handling all these different things. And I, it was just such an encouragement to me to see an immediate response that way. One of the things that my wife and I did or tried to do in ministry, and I, anybody in ministry, I share this with you, and that is we wanted our children to be open to whatever God would have for them. And I shared that three of them are serving the Lord full time. And we've had some real hard times financially. We know what it is to pray food on the table. We know what it is to pray clothes where we didn't have, not have the money for clothes. My, my first pastorate, I made $5. I was full-time, made $5 less than unemployment. So if I wasn't working, I'd have done better than being a pastor. So we, we know what it is to go through hard times you know, and other times. But the one thing that we tried never to do is to ever talk about church problems or mission problems in front of our children. Because I think that's where a lot of kids get turned up. You know, that dumb field director. Or his wife, depending on which one's running the field. <laughs> Don't laugh, it isn't funny. It's not funny when the wife is run. you know, the guy's wife is really calling all the shots on the field. There was a question back, yes sir, way back. Well, that's when I always say, you know, the last three things, my wife says, Jim. Oh. <laughs> uh, well, that, that would be one. Uh, if you have television, I would not let them watch unmonitored 
television. I, I can't tell you the struggles. I mean, I just wish, see, it's so hard to think of this stuff. It's so common for me. I mean, these kids are talking about all the stuff that's bothering them and where they get, where, where, where they're getting, uh, struggling with. The, we have a lot of young men that want victory over their sensuality at 14, 15, and 16. Amazed at the young men that are talking about this. And the thing that, that bothers them is that there is material that's available in the home that it's so easy for them to have access to that uh, is stirring up in them that problem and they keep being defeated. And some are just catalogs. Now, if you are a hardcore pornagaholic, then you're going, you know, what's a Sears or Penny's catalog or something like that. But for a young man who's not been exposed to a lot of evil, it doesn't take a whole lot of, of, of suggestiveness to be a real problem to him. Uh, one of there's a pastor in here, and he brought a young man with, to, to see me who was heavily demonized. He's a young man that was cutting upside down crosses on his arm and drinking that blood to Satan. And the family was bolting the doors at night because they were afraid to sleep in the house with this teenage boy without the house being bolted. But anyway, this boy is sitting there. His dad's sitting next to him, and he says, "Not only to have trouble with Satan, I have trouble with pornography." Really bad. He's not Christian. I mean, he gets saved in all of this, but this time he's not Christian. And I said, "Well." You really want to be free of this stuff? I said, throw it away. He said, I can't. It's my dad's. Well, the dad could have crawled through the couch. And I can't tell you how many young men that come in my office that are trapped in erotic, demonic bondage that found their dad's stuff under the dresser drawer. I said, how did you know to pull a dresser drawer out and then on the floor under that drawer would be the stuff? He said, I don't know. Other kids were at, kneeling at the bed and they stuck their hand between the the box spring and the mattress and felt a magazine. Now can you can you imagine a, a teenage boy putting his hand under the mattress? You know, they don't make their beds or they don't want to or whatever. <laughs> you know, you're wondering, you know, it's amazing. This stuff is hidden and these kids find it and the folks don't even know. I've had even adult men, when did you get involved in pornography? Seven years of old, seven years of age, eight years of age, at a neighbor's house. I saw this stuff and all of a sudden it did something to me, I can't tell you that it lit fires in me that a seven-year-old shouldn't have. And I've struggled with just the most awful thoughts. Well, a man came up to me after one of the seminars. We were talking about moral purity for a man. And he said, you know, he said, my dad was a believer. And he said, uh, one day I got on my knees and, and I was at the bed and I put my hand under the, between the bedspread, I mean, between the mattress and the box springs and I felt a magazine. And so he said, I didn't pull it out, but I waited till, Nobody was home, and I went in, and I put my hand under, and I pulled it out, and it was holiness to the Lord. <laughs> Is there a denominational magazine that Dad must have slipped under there? <laughs> I like those kind of stories. You know, those are good ones. Yes, sir. We have a music man here. I mean, it's a pastor, but also a music man has written a lot of music and all, and said that uh, a young man in his church who wanted to give up rock music couldn't do it until his father did. And just realized that the, the words and the music was really destroying his life. Yes, sir? 
kids have to learn. Now, don't don't take it out of context. Just so I'm through. Don't blow it away. Kids have to learn how to make how to suffer the consequences of wrong decisions long before they're teenagers. Like what? Well, you go to the store and there's that cereal, you know, that that has the decoder in it, or the thing that glows in the dark that you put on your finger, or some type of laser that you know that you can laser other kids in the neighborhood. But the cereal just lays there. It doesn't do anything. It just gets soggy. It doesn't snap, pop, or make noises. And there's nothing candy floating in it. And your son says, I want this. He says, but you don't like it. But I want it. You know why he wants it, don't you? It's the thing that's in there for free. Give it to him. But make him eat all of it. So you don't take it away. Or, you know, I want that lunch meat. You say, but that's pepper loaf. You don't like pepper. Well, he eats a whole thing of pepper loaf. Not all at one time, but you know what I mean? That's what he gets on his sandwich. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? The kids have got to learn somewhere that when they make a decision, if it's not a good decision, there's consequences. Then you can guide them as they get older and show them some of the consequences of these decisions. One of the things that we did, our son was here today. He's a youth pastor. One of the neatest things of his wedding that just took place is when he prayed, he thanked God that he had, he's 27 and he had stayed pure for 27 years. And that God had separated this young lady who also had stayed pure for her life and brought them together that they might be a real example to the young people in the church. He's a full-time junior high youth pastor to share that testimony. But when Richard was in junior high, we allowed him to have a clock radio in his bedroom. And Richard has always been an outstanding, really a godly young man. He's led so many hundreds and hundreds to Christ before he got out of high school. And we didn't realize that here we gave him a radio before he was mature enough to deal with what he listened to. And we began to see, my wife is very sensitive, and she began to see an attitude slip. So we disciplined our children for attitudes, not actions. Attitudes are wrong actions in the bud. You know, nip it there. When you see that attitude, you ever see kids roll their eyes? Your kids never did that? You know what they're saying? Well, our kids didn't dare say it. They just went, and they only rolled them a few times. <laughs> but anyway, he was listening to wrong music, and we didn't realize that. But all of a sudden, we saw a, a change in his life as he was listening to these radios. And we had to take the radio out of his room. If you're not able to handle a radio in your room, and maybe we were wrong to put a radio in there to tempt you to listen to music that was not right, and it's having a real effect on your life. And we had to take that radio away when he's like 13 or whatever. So there, there, we, we, we did this with our kids at the end. We said, you know, we loved you kids. And we've been real squeaky and we've been real conservative. And maybe we were too strict, but I want, we want you to know one thing. We did it because we loved you and we wanted you to turn out right. That's what my wife does. She's a real intercessor for our family and our grandchildren. For marriage, what you said, sometimes you can't do that at a church, but when our daughter got married, our first daughter, some of you have gone to the Gothard seminars in the old days and you heard about the guy that wrote the guy that the girl wanted to date, you have to write my father. Well, that's our oldest daughter and that was me, that Tom was writing me. That's our, our daughter, Cheryl, who is now 38 or so. But when she was going to get married, it's our first one to leave. I thought, what do you do? What should a family do? I mean, you may not be able to do anything at the church, but what should be the last thing you do with your daughter? And I was reading scripture just asking God, and I read in Genesis when Rebecca left. And what was the very last thing Rebecca did when she left her house? What was the last thing that happened before she went to be a wife? Her family put a blessing on her. 
And the very last thing we did with our daughter before she walked out of the door of our home is to put a Rebecca blessing on her when she left to go to the church. And so we did one with our son, on our son. Our whole family, our extended family came for the, for the, for the wedding, except one of our daughters that teaches at Trinity in Miami, and she couldn't get away. And so the whole family got around Richard, and all of our married children put a special blessing on our son just before he went up to be married.